Good evening and welcome back to another episode of Please Call Me Crazy, brought to you by Free People Radio and powered by our favorite sponsor, TireGit.com. That's TireGit.com. You have to buy tires from somebody. You might as well buy them from us. Help fund the movement. Help support the movement. We believe in the freedom of movement, and that's exactly what the establishment wants to take from you now. I am your host, Royce White, here in the belly of the beast, Minneapolis, Minnesota, for episode 130. The day is... Monday, November the 13th, year of our Lord, 2023. I hope you all enjoyed the Sunday night special of Father Ripperger um, talking about the different levels of spiritual warfare. I thought it was appropriate, not only because it was a Sunday, but, but just for the overall situation that we see unfolding all around the world in our communities, in our states, in our nation, but really all around the world. There's a certain level of, of spiritual warfare that's becoming more and more obvious. And one, you know, uh, always should be taking a step back, taking a step back and, and thinking about what should I be doing? Well, you know, what, what should I be doing with my time? You know, there are all these global issues. There are all these political issues. There are all these, uh, um, huge, huge social issues. There are all these conversations about very complex, complicated history and so on and so forth. What should I as an individual be doing? And it's going to be different for everybody. And you should pray. You should ask Christ for, for guidance. As Father Ripperger said, thank Christ, be grateful, thank Christ, and, and ask him to use you use you in whatever way he sees fit. It's part of one of the, one of the rich Christian traditions that I think is uh, beautiful, maybe the most beautiful out of all the major faith traditions is this idea that uh, all glory is to God, right? And in that glory and, and, and giving and submitting yourself over to God, you will eventually most likely find yourself in a, in a position of suffering as God as God chose to show his love for us by sending his only begotten son to suffer and die on the cross for our sins. And, and we do as Christians and Catholics believe in the Trinitarian God and that, that God actually, and there's a great justification for this, um, this sort of theological um, take on Christ and the resurrection, Christ and the crucifixion and the resurrection. If you grow up, in a Catholic school, this is just, you know, what, what you're taught um, as, a, as a young child. But the, the thinking behind it is that God uh, essentially um, needed to, uh, not, not even needed to, through grace and, and charity and love, uh, decided to uh, incarnate himself as a human being so as to be able to incur a level of suffering great enough to show his love for his children, all of his children, through his own flesh and blood. It's a very beautiful and humbling, humbling idea. I don't know why people get so bent out of shape uh, about that about that idea. Um, and that's what I want to kind of want to talk about today is, you know, how to how to view these things that are unfolding as a young person, as a Christian, as a Maybe atheist, maybe you're uh, an atheist libertarian or whatever the case may be, but 
But like I said about politics, and I told Jason Whitlock this a number of times, you may not be interested in politics, but it's certainly interested in you. The same goes for religion and and faith tradition or holy wars. You may not be interested in the religious or the, the cultural or, in some cases, ethnic faith practice of, of certain groups of people, but it certainly has interest in you, and now maybe more than ever. And we're on the brink of, of unholy war. Actually, we're fighting an extension of a holy war that's been going on for, for ages. And you got to know history in order to understand that so that you can kind of make heads or tails of, of the gravity of the situation that we now find ourselves in. You know, we've been fighting a war, us Christians, and, and more specifically Catholics have been fighting a war against uh, the Muslims since the days of the Crusades. Um, and the Temple Mount and the significance of Jerusalem and, and Israel is a, is a three-faith holy site uh, for all three Abrahamic religions. Obvious reasons why, right? Because the, the patrons, the forefathers, the forebears of the faith all stem from this, uh, the, same, the same story, um, the same history. And so, you know, it's tough. I, you know, one of the things I'll, I'll say in, in full honesty, and I said this on my Twitter earlier today, um, I always take each issue and I separate them out from what people are saying and then what's actually happening, what I'm being showed and what's actually happening, what people claim to be speaking on behalf of and what their actions in other places show them to be uh, committed to ideologically, politically, socially spiritually and otherwise. So the first thing I've always used uh, as a means of critical thought, and a lot, of, a lot of people out there ask me, what do I read and how did I come to be knowledgeable around a certain you know, vast number of topics? Um, it's first principles, first principles. And the first thing that I try to root out is contradiction. Is there contradiction? First, we should start by rooting out contradiction. If we can, if we can get the contradiction, under control within a you know within our grasp if we can understand the contradiction then we can start to work our way towards truth or what they would call absolute truth universal truth it's no easy feat i mean the human spirit since time immemorial has a sort of contradictive nature to it And that's part of the reprisal, you know, we could say the, uh, the, the, the resentment that's articulated from the Satanists or some, some cases atheists uh, about the creation myth and, and the story of God and original sin. Their, their claim is something like, um, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, then why would God set us on a path where we are bound to sin over the course of a lifetime? Um, isn't that that kind of... Uh, um, well, they would, they would call it evil, but, but I would call it beautiful and loving. Two totally different, two totally different perspectives on, on the human existence and the human condition, and most of that is rooted in how you view suffering. Do you view suffering? Do you view tribulation? Do you view hardship? Do you view all of these things as a, a, a necessary juxtaposition to love and peace and glory and charity and grace. 
If you don't have those concepts, if you don't understand those concepts, if you don't have a firm grasp or principle or ethic or, or basic knowledge about those concepts, it's going to hard, be hard for you to, to accept suffering. And some levels of suffering, some degrees of suffering are harder to accept than others. And that makes perfect sense. There's, there's, uh, there's room for that. There's room for that in the Christian faith, but there's room for that in, in, in our society. You know, if you wake up tomorrow and you're, I have a, I have a 10 year old daughter, I have a 12 year old daughter, I have a 13 year old daughter, I have a 12 year old son, I'm sorry. And I have a, uh, 11 year old son. And, um, you know, if I woke up tomorrow and, you know, for some reason, God forbid, one of my children just didn't wake up, died in their sleep, you know, that's a level of, uh, of severity of suffering that's going to be much more difficult to deal with. And I think part of, the, part of the great tragedy of losing faith, losing religion in the West is that our, our degree of suffering has been watered down. Our degree of suffering has been watered down. But first, I want to go back to, the, you know, what I do is like to sort out the contradiction. And right now, we have a huge global conflict with a very, very complicated history unfolding there in the Middle East with all the nations of the world focused on that region, on that conflict. And any number of things could could result from it. A number of things will result from it. That, that much we can be sure. The question is what, and the better question for us as American citizens is, what result do we want? What result should we want? What can we do? How can we do it? And I started off this, this morning thinking about <clears throat> this whole free Palestine phenomenon, this whole free Palestine movement, this whole free Palestine uh, social media trend. And the first thing that came to my mind is how do I verify if all of these people have a genuine, a genuine um, care, a genuine concern, uh, genuine interest, uh, genuine commitment to Palestine? How do I start to, to verify, you know, what, what, what things can I look at? What things can I look at present or in the past to, to start to verify uh, the the move the the momentum uh, the of a of a movement. And my mind was immediately drawn to the Uyghurs there in in Xinjiang, in East Turkestan, formerly East Turkestan. And the reason why I was drawn to to the Uyghurs is, you know, the cultural simulators obviously is a is a huge one. You have. Uh, a Muslim minority there in East Turkestan, which is the far, you know, one of the furthest Western provinces of, of China. Uh, you have an ethnic, ethnic minority and religious minority in, in the, the Uyghurs, the Turk Uyghurs, Turkic Uyghurs. And they have by many conventional, conventional, um, many conventional metrics, many, many uh, international agencies, the same international agencies that have now deemed uh, the Palestine, the, the war there in, in, in Israel or the conflict there in Israel, they've deemed 
what Israel has doing as war crimes, um, those same bodies, the United Nations, for example, uh, has long since deemed what's been done to the Uyghurs as uh, genocide. It's actually on paper referred to as the Uyghur genocide uh, <laughs> because they are being ethnically cleansed by the CCP, the Chinese government. And I just ask myself, you know, where are all these liberal institutions? Where is their outrage? Where is their outcry? Where is all of their their um, their sadness? Where are all of the videos? Where where is all of the 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 viral content when it comes to the Uyghurs? It's much shorter history, right? I mean, certainly the 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 Uyghur concentration camps only date back to the, the first rumblings about the Uyghur concentration camps. They date back to around, I don't know, it was 2014 when it first, uh, when it first started to, to pop up. Um, 2014-15, but I mean, we're almost eight years into that, you know, 10 years, approaching 10 years pretty quick. And there are no signs that the Uyghurs have been released, that the Uyghurs have been treated any better. Uh, there are plenty of Uyghur advocates all across the world, plenty of people who have uh, Turkic descent, which is a good number of people who are spread all across the world. I get messages all the time because I was, uh, I had a, a viral clip at a big three game there on CBS, live on CBS, where I called for the Uyghurs to be freed. Um, and ever since that moment, you know, when a clip has that type of viral that type of viral um, engagement. You know, you'll have people who have not, never seen the clip from three years ago see it for the first time today, and they'll reach out and message you and say, thank you for standing up for my people. And you go and look and see where they're from, and they don't live in China. They don't live in East Turkestan. They live in, you know, Chicago, <laughs> right? Or they live in Australia, or, you know, they live in, in, in Egypt, or whatever the case may, may be. Um, so I often, you know, am able to see just the, the overall momentum, the overall trend towards these, these movements. And it's a, uh, it's a conflict of a different sort for sure. So I understand that the, the, the visceral nature towards the conflicts are, are different, but it's the same principle. And I think it is the same principle, although you see a stark difference in in the overall um, overall messaging about one issue versus the other. And there is a stark difference. And that stark difference is, hey, the Uyghurs are an afterthought, right? Because I guess China has good airports and and communism is a net positive, and that's the way we want to go in the world. So, hey, you know, the Uyghurs, uh, not really that big of a deal. That's just a right-wing talking point. That's just more Republican, far-right conspiracy theory. But the United Nations is the one who called it a genocide. And we're supposed to, we're supposed to listen to the United Nations and the World Health Organization when they want to give us a vaccine. But when they call the Uyghur genocide a genocide, we're all supposed to look past it and, look away 
because Donald Trump was the one to call out China, and I guess any criticism of China is a byproduct of far right-wing conspiracy theory? Okay. I, I don't know how you arrived there. Uh, please, in the comments, if you're one of those people, tell me how you arrived at, at that, at that uh, conclusion. I'm, I'm actually interested. I don't say that flippantly. I really want to know the thought process there. Um, but, but one of the things that, that, that I want to demonstrate, if I can, is that I'm not one of these one side or the other people. Never have been, never will be. It doesn't make me lukewarm. It doesn't make me a fence rider. It doesn't make my, my no any more of a no and my yes any more of a yes. And I think what's become more hard, what's become harder for people in our modern culture is to have a definitive yes or no about being pulled onto one side or the other. Now, with the China and Uyghur situation, there's something much more clear-cut about it. You had an ethnic minority who the Chinese government claimed were radicalized, that were a threat of, you know, were, were, were a threat were a terroristic threat, basically. Essentially, if you go back and you read uh, the, the reports or the, the official documentation from the Chinese government and the justification they gave as to why they had these re-education camps, quote-unquote, and that's what they call them in China, they call them re-education camps, much like Hillary Clinton claimed the MAGA and far right wing of the Republican Party may in some, some, uh, some way need formal re-education. Well, it's no surprise that her buddies there in, in China, the CCP, have already got a head start on, on the, the American liberals and the Western liberals and Democrats on that front. So they've decided to formally re-educate the, the Uyghurs. And the justification they gave is that they were a potential terrorist threat. And to go even deeper, they made the claim that Western intelligence communities were using the Uyghurs to destabilize the region there in Xinjiang in, in the same way that the Western intelligence agencies or community has always played with certain radical, rebellious uh, groups throughout the Middle East region and throughout the Asian region to help destabilize governments when they see fit. Uh, now, some of that may in fact be true, and that's the... That's the tough part about the, the conversation is it wouldn't be beyond any of us in the America First movement to believe that the CIA or any other intelligence agency may in fact be trying to overreach into another country's affairs and business and, and, and in pursuit of its own interests or perceived interests or agendas or missions or goals. All of us would be, would be very open to that idea and familiar with, with past uh, dealings of the sort with the CIA specifically, right? A couple weeks back when the Mark Levin thing popped off, I talked about Iran-Contra. Iran-Contra is one of those situations. Not recent, happened in the, the 70s, but, uh, you know, it's so facto, a lot of the same people are still high up in, in the intelligence community that were there then. Uh, Bushes are still up there in power. The Mark Levins are still 
you know, dancing around out there on the field, and, and there are others as well spread throughout Kagan and, and a lot of these other neoconservatives that were evolved, involved in that initial uh, generation of, of, of CIA and, and you know, black ops intelligence. So we all understand that, yeah, the, the CIA or another group may in fact have been in the region there in the West, uh, in Western China, um, to run some mission that, that, I don't know, maybe they were trying to get information, maybe they were spying, maybe they were just trying to give the CCP a hard time, maybe they were trying to create a territorial instability. I don't know what the case may be. You know, it, it, that's beyond me. But what I do know is regardless of the threat that's presented to a nation, anytime you move to, anytime you... And this is why I started with this, the suffering of, and self-sacrifice of Christianity. And we, we disregard this at our own peril as individuals, but also as a nation. When you have a nation, when you've signed up for the re responsibility of having a nation, of leading a nation, of leading people, um, of, of leading through governance, if you're an elected official, if you're a thought leader, if you're a spiritual leader, um, the suffering that you're willing to incur has a direct impact on the spiritual well-being of those who follow you. And that's an important thing for us to understand right now. And, and so in context of what I'm saying about the Uyghurs in China is as soon as a government identify, identifies a threat and says, because we've identified this threat, we're now going to over compensate for the unknown by categorizing this entire group of people as a potential threat, and we're going to use that threat to justify our own tyranny and really our own injustice. That's what the Chinese government did to the Uyghurs. Uh, they said, oh, well, you, you got some rebellion going on here. You got some revolt going on here. You, you Uyghur people have an ideology that's dangerous. And so again, when I go to my falsif uh, you know, uh, falsification or you know, verification process and looking at the Chinese government, the CCP, and how genuine any narrative from them would be about any issue, but in this case, the Uyghurs, I say, well, are there any other groups of people that they decided to persecute that didn't have to do with the uprisings there in Xinjiang from the the Turkic uh, Uyghur people. And there were some terrorist attacks that popped up from the Turkic, Turkic Uyghur people. Um, it's, that's on the record. But how do they treat other believers? Well, you had the House Christians, you had the, the Tibetans, you know, you had, uh, you had Tiananmen Square, you had a number of things in the CCP's not so distant history that, that indicates their treatment of the Uyghurs is much more a product of their own impulse towards tyranny and authoritarianism than it is anything that the Uyghurs are doing. Okay, um, And even more so, even more importantly, as a government, there is a certain level of responsibility that falls on you to incur the suffering of peoples that may be causing you problems, that may be causing a problem that may be causing a lot of problems. And part of upholding the moral and ethical, the spiritual fortitude 
of the nation. Because there's the spirit, there's the ethic, there's the moral, there's the spirit of the individual. Then there's the ethic, moral, spiritual of the community. Then there's the ethic, moral, spiritual of the collective nation. And this is where government and government decisions have a huge impact on the overall spiritual health of the nation. The same way the leaders there in Rome have a huge, their, their choices have a huge impact on the spiritual, the overall spiritual health of the church and its, and its patrons. Same thing true in government, which is why the deep state and the deep church and its corrosive, their, their corrosiveness mirror one another, as a Archbishop Vigano has, has continuously um, preached. Your leaders have a direct impact on the overall spiritual health. And, and so when you take uh, a mission, a goal of a nation, of a nation's government and say, uh, the only thing we need to think about is how we can make things easiest for us. There's a lack of gratitude for suffering in that. And there's a fine line because you don't want to incur so much suffering, right, that you, that you allow anarchy. But you don't want to jump the gun and be so trigger happy in trying to mitigate suffering that you become a tyrant. And this is why you need great leaders. This is why you need people with sacred honor to govern. Because that calculation isn't easy to make. You know, that, that calculation is the highest level and people always talk about politicians being, you know, actors or you know, sellouts or whatever the case may be. And a lot of times that's true. Um, your politician, the modern politician has become that in many instances, but in some ways by our own will, desire as a people, we the people, and a lot of people all over the world, because real leadership would, would also yield real responsibility and accountability. And a lot of us say we want that, but we really don't. So we say we want competent leaders. We say we want real leaders, but there's a part of us that really doesn't. And, and then when those leaders fail us, we find, we find it convenient to use them as a scapegoat when really we had no desire for them to, to be true leaders in the first place, if, if you follow that. And, and so, you know, again, if I'm China, the right response would be, number one, is there something that we're doing? Is there something we're doing that justifies a people to feel oppressed and to revolt against our, our, our form of governance? And the obvious answer with the CCP is, of course there is. I mean, they're overtly authoritarian. They're greatly tyrannical in their in their governance and policies with things like the social credit score the one child policy was abhorrent enough but then as the one child policy fell away they doubled down on technocracy and authoritarianism with high high level surveillance of their people social credit scores and a sort of uh, uh bag and tag black bag full-blown censorship of their media which is state-owned and um disappearing of, of political dissidents. So when I look at that and I go for that contradiction, when I go to, to ask to, 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 to 
separate out if the CCP has any real validity, any any leg to stand on in their claims made against the Uyghurs and the justification for putting them in concentration camps. I come up with a very simple answer. No, the CCP's full of shit. And, and you heard Professor Penn say the ethic of the West, the ethic of the Judeo-Christian West is um, he who can be successful without lying. The, the ethic there in China is exactly the opposite. It's it's he who is the best at manipulate manipulating, he who is the best at deception in pursuit of material wealth and an excess of material wealth, to, to, to be more blunt. Radical materialism. The, the CCP um, are the, the crown jewel of, of communist Marxist thought, uh, a level of, of tyranny and authoritarianism, a one-government-type a one rule with communism at its center that makes everything about price. And it's quite strange to see all of these leftists scream anti-colonialism, scream white supremacy, scream the whole system is guilty. But per capita, en masse, you will rarely see them bring any criticism to China, or for that matter, any, any criticism to our relationship with China economically. Yet, their entire political platform is based on price or the unequal distribution of resources. Marxism, what Marx did, what Karl Marx did was he reduced the human existence down to price, which means he, he reduced the human existence down to materialism. And, and in that sense, he set humanity on a path where anybody who adopted Marx, anybody who adopted communism, any country, any place, any community where there was any sort of disparity between the have and the have-nots, uh, would generate uh, a sort of allure for communist and Marxist thought, which wasn't, which isn't uh, completely, which isn't off base in, which isn't off base in its assessment and its analysis of the constant unequal distribution of resources. That part is true. That part we can see. That part we can measure. There have always been and there most likely will always be elites and, and lower class. There will always be a lower class and an upper class. Now, hopefully, and what democracy did a good job of trying to um, create is the idea of a very strong middle class, which used to be the backbone of America's power. Uh, on the on the global stage is we had a very, very strong middle class. And we see that in, in a number of economies across the world, that countries who have a very strong middle class are the countries that are usually the most solid in, 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 in all areas, economically, uh, militarily, uh, politically, so on and so forth. And, and so that that idea, that very idea has been warped and, and twisted into a new idea that we need to redistribute the resources, we need to destroy the system and burn it down, we need to 
throw off the shackles of being working class, middle class citizens or, or a whole host of other things. And, and again, I, I just go back and ask, if all of those things that these Western liberals, that these leftists, that these progressives say is genuine, about the unequal distribution of wealth and resources, about freedom, about freedom of speech, freedom of expression. How have they come to align themselves so closely with China? Or why have we found them so, so silent when it comes to China? Now, their immediate response will be, we have issues here, and they'll use black people to make that claim that we need to worry about what's going on with the black people in Chicago before we worry about what's going on with the Uyghurs in in. East Turkestan. But conveniently, when it's a war between Israel and Palestine, all of a sudden we now have that global perspective again. And I'm not saying we shouldn't worry about global issues because I would never say that the global doesn't affect the local. But what I am saying, what what does what does sort of weigh on me mentally, um, how selective we are. And I can't help but but think that the selectiveness of our outrage is primarily based on our our desire, our need, or the new trend to be tribal politically. And so the obvious look away of China in their treatment of a cultural and ethnic minority, a religious minority, their their treatment of them is overlooked, is is given a pass for two reasons. One, because there is a general, a more general uh acceptance of religious persecution all around the world, right? And a radical materialist sort of scientific and technocratic secular culture, global culture, there is a growing acceptance of religious persecution. And that may be, that that probably is the number one reason why the Uyghur Muslims in China are overlooked or, you know, completely uh, kept silent uh, from a large number of people even other Arab nations, even other Muslim nations, right? We've heard many times that the Uyghurs and other Turkic Uyghur people around the country, uh, around the world have, have um, been very critical of other Arab and Muslim nations for not speaking out or speaking up uh, or, or condemning China's treatment of, of those people. And rightfully so. And there are a lot of Arab and Muslim nations who have overlooked the treatment of the Uyghurs conveniently. And if you look deep enough, a lot of people are on the T. They're on the money train there with China and the CCP. And whether it's Saudi Arabia, who now has a new economic uh, currency that they're working on with China, they've been working on it closely for a while. And Iran being one of the biggest uh, oil suppliers to, to China, uh, and that being a, a huge source of their their national GDP there in Iran. Uh, and a number of other countries as well around around in, in the Middle Eastern region. Selective outrage. Selective outrage. So religious persecution, number one. But number two is the political ideology of communism. These two things. And the two go hand in hand. Because while Karl Marx tried to promote his philosophy as an, an, an anti-wealthy, anti-elite Let's just have everybody have enough uh, resources. He wasn't shy in, in, in being explicit that it was a secular ideology. 
And so the, the function of money gets hijacked and used as a war on God or a war on faith. And it's effective. It's been effective. And it was effective then. It was effective then, and as Christianity grew, as Christianity or as Christians disobeyed the commandments and took the Lord's name in vain, they opened the door, they laid the groundwork for Marxists and communists all across the world to use those sins as a pretext to delegitimize God himself. And that's exactly what they do. That's exactly what they will continue to do. And that's why you hear all of the free Palestine talk, and I spend a lot of time listening to the narrative from every different angle, and I'm willing to hear. When somebody says something that's true, regardless of if I like, their pers- like them or not, I say, oh, that part is true. Yep, that's true. That's not true. That's true. They're saying that part truthfully, but for this reason. They're saying that part in their life, but they're just missing this information, missing this part. I'm very objective in the way that I, that I look at any issue. Because what's the point in doing it any other way? If you're going to win by lying, you don't win. That's for all these Republicans who think they're going to run, these Republican candidates or the RNC, who think they're going to run a candidate like The Rock, right, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And, and if we can get enough people to like him who are moderate, then we win. No, we have to have a platform. We have to have a set of beliefs and values that we can passionately, dis- uh, with passion, with discipline, with commitment, with, with some enthusiasm, minister and evangelize people uh, into. And, 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 and if we can do that, if we have the winning argument, if our oratory reflects an argument that gives value to people, in some way that can be articulated and, and be measured, then we've, we've won the game of politics. But if you just kowtow and bend to whatever the people think they want or whatever they've been brainwashed into thinking they want, you don't win. You just become a, an oligarch of a, a house of cards, a political house of cards. That's why it was important to get McCarthy out, but I digress. My point is, Marx, Marx, talked about the unequal distribution of resources, but really he used the function of money, the function of economy, the unequal distribution of resources that always pops up in a society to wage a war against God and faith. And that's what the Chinese have done against the Muslims there in East Turkestan. And I can't help but think that this affection that I see for China, this, this sort of uh, romanticism that I see with China and, and its communism all across social media is a huge reason why you could simultaneously hold the views that we should free Palestine, but the Uyghurs are just a, a fiction of far right-wing conspiracy of the China hawks. Even if the United Nation, an independent international peacekeeping organization, which is bullshit itself, but even if the United Nations deems it as a genocide, hey, the United Nations can be right on every other thing except for this. The United Nations is right here, 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 but with this one, we'll just say, nah, we're not buying it. Selective outrage. And how does this tie into Palestine? I just, 
I just want to say I, I'm, I'm having ongoing conversations with many of my Muslim friends, friends that come from Arab countries and how they see it, many of my Jewish friends, my Israeli friends and how they see it, and you find a, a, a serious mixture of, of opinion. Real mixture of opinion. I mean, you just, you just find, you know, that there's such a break. And part of the, the mixture of opinion is really a breakdown in, in historical accounting. And so, you know, for example, on both sides, I mean, there's bullshit on both sides, right? And when you say that, people go, oh, you're lukewarm. Are you, are you, you know, who are you, who, who are you trying to defend here? I mean, just, you know. Go fuck yourself. I'm an American citizen. It's America first. If we're going to have an intellectual or philosophical conversation about politics and geopolitics and conflicts that may spring us into world war, sure, it's fruitful and reasonable to have those conversations. It's not the be all end all unless we go to nuclear war, which is a possibility. Then it's fast approaching to be all end all. There's still a spiritual consideration, so I hope everybody's right with God, but you know, we are kind of in the presence of world war. And let's listen to Russell Brand the other day, just a quick four or five minute video. And he goes, yeah, I mean, I may not personally be connected on either side, either Israel or Palestine, but that doesn't mean I can't have an opinion because you're a little bit more passionate or, 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 or you know, emotionally invested in the situation because of your proximity to it, whether that be culturally, ethnically, religiously, geographically, or, or what have you, um, I get to have an opinion too, partly because a lot of our tax money of people who aren't directly connected to it is going to be used. And even furthermore, uh, war is going to be waged in the, in the, in the name of, of our nation and by, by product, you know, by way of um, uh, the, our, our nation's people. And that could be us here in America. It could be people there in Europe. It could be, you know, wherever you are. I mean, world war and conflicts of this magnitude have a way of pulling everybody into them. That's part of the reason why it's called a world war, right? Um, so, yeah, we get to have an opinion. Now, myself personally, I feel, um, I feel deeply connected to the issue. One, um, because America, America as, as a nation, America will be central um, in, in how war is carried out. You can already see that as much as the Arab nations wanted to uh, beat on their chest in the name of Palestine in this, this, this uh, war crime, quote-unquote, atrocity being done to the Palestinian people, that battle cruiser, that that destroyer there in the Mediterranean, the the Ford and, and the other one that sailed into the Mediterranean, surely did a did a good job of keeping everybody in check. Because it was my understanding that when Israel started their ground invasion, that Iran and Hezbollah and some of these other people who were in support of of the Palestinian and Hamas cause would would retaliate. And now there has been some small retaliation. There has been some incursions. Uh, on the Lebanon border, and Hezbollah has started to uh, engage engage Israel from from much of the reporting there from the front line, um, and and other nations are on standby. I mean, the, the the rhetoric hasn't calmed down, 
But certainly there were promises made. There were things that were said that were not followed through on. And that's kind of what I predicted that, you know, there, there is this rhetoric around tribal connection there in the Middle East or with the Arab nations that, um, that often ends up being more rhetoric than it is, than it is action. And we can see a lot of the same things here in our own country, even right here in our own political party that people talk a lot. And then when it comes time to do the doing, uh, it's hard to, hard to take a head count. Everybody isn't always up for the, the task. So, and, the, and there's no reason to think that, that the people in any other part of the world would be any more committed or any more disciplined in their, in, in uh, applying their, their ideologies and their rhetoric to their actions. We all struggle with that. That's part of the human condition. The struggle to, to transition from thought, belief, rhetoric, to action. Uh, that, that, is, uh, that is a human conundrum, to say the least. So, you know, we, we find ourselves in this place where it's hard to, it's hard to know where, where we go from here. It's hard to know where we should go from here. Just honestly. I mean, I put myself in a position as if, 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 you know, Part of the history is part of the history is there's so much bullshit on both sides. It's become a Gordian knot that's intentionally complicated and it's intentionally hard to untangle. And I said the other day on the podcast, and some of you may not like it, you know, Iran is on the payroll. Okay, so they're they're undermining of the West at at a at a level, at some point, Iran's being an enemy of America and the West is no longer a matter of genuine or 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 organic um conflict it becomes an inside job and and that's what that's what many people would say is the fine line where you cross over into conspiracy theory but the the simple fact of the matter is we do business with china we send money to china china sends our money to iran iran then what funds missions or goals or or movements or rebellious little sleeper cells or whatever the case may be terrorist groups that that attack the west and its allies i mean what kind of circle jerk are we running here and if we really want to cut iran off then why haven't we cut off china well the answer is easy because we can't cut off china we've been placed in this sort of you know in this sort of uh, revolving ecosystem of of self-perpetuated conflict and when you get to that level it becomes very hard not to think that smart educated people who sit high up in, in government don't understand that that they haven't that they haven't agreed to it at least it's hard for me to believe i don't know about you out there feel free to drop in the comments is do, do you think that the the john Kerry's of the world that the the Boltons of the world, that the the Blinkens of the world, George Bushes of the world, whoever you pick, somebody, Obama, you know, Hillary. I mean, pick 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 whoever you want. Um, do you think these people don't don't know? Didn't know? Do you think their policy, that their their foreign policy, that their trade policy, wasn't aware that American tax money, that America's consumer money, would eventually ends up end up in the hands of Iranians, uh, people who say openly, death to America. 
And then remember now, Iran says that death to America is not uh, an ideology. It's their policy. And I just want to say, I feel bad for what's happening in Palestine. I really do. And it, when I go back throughout the history, I, I start to see uh, a conflict that, that sprung up there in, in, in the Middle East that I go back to, you know, the crown and the World War II. And I've been through that history before, and we can talk about it again. It's always good to revisit the inflection points throughout history to understand how things really got going, because then you can see the domino effect. And then things become less complicated. It's just like, oh, well, yeah, you pull the gun on a cop, and the cop told you to drop the gun. You didn't drop the gun, so the cop shot you. Domino effect. Now, whatever set of circumstances brought you to draw a gun on a cop, maybe he didn't identify himself. Maybe he was in plain clothes. Maybe uh, it was the middle of the night, and he had a no-knock warrant and kicked your door down, and you thought it was a robber. Maybe, um, you know, you're having a psychotic episode, or, you know, maybe you're seeing uh, demons. I don't know. But all of it becomes, all of it's at play. I mean, you know, all of it's fair game, but but you can start to see that domino effect the more information you have, the more history you know. That's a part of the process of adjudicating uh, crime, punishment, justice, uh, retribution. These are first principles. So when I look back at this history there in Palestine and Middle East, I go, a lot of shit going on there. I mean, just a, no shortage of, of shit popping off and, and, you know, these people, these, I mean, it's just a shit show. Feel bad for the Palestinians, no doubt, but you have to look at Iran's rhetoric as a huge incitement of tension and consequently violence and chaos. Because ultimately, when Iran says death to America is their policy, what they're really saying is they want to fight. And if you want to fight, then America's, you know, America's ready to give a fight. I mean, we're ready to fight. If there's one thing we are, we're ready to fight. If there's one thing the military-industrial complex loves is a good fight. If there's one thing that the entire economic Ponzi scheme of the post-World War II Democratic Liberal Order and the Bretton Woods Conference and the reserve currency and the expansion of the military-industrial complex that replaced the, the, the colonial empire. If there's one thing that we love is a good fight because we have a death and debt culture. We have a death and debt society. We have a debt, death and debt economy. We have a death and debt way of, 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 of life. We love a good fight. Oh, there's going to be some debt and some death? Oh, we're in. But, and, and, and I say that as partly as an indictment of the West and our Western culture because I think there's a better way for us to do it. I genuinely do. And I think ultimately there's huge spiritual culpability on us for, for participating and perpetuating a system in a culture like that. But at the same time, it is what it is. And if Iran wants to yell death to America, you're asking for a fight, and you're going to get it. Now, maybe you want to die. I mean, maybe these Iranians want to go out in a, in a blaze of glory for their, their faith and their, their culture and their beliefs. That's possible. And what I want everybody to understand is, you know, 
if somebody wants to commit suicide, and tr I'm a mental health advocate, I was actually one of the first people to hit the public square and say mental health is the greatest social issue we face because mental health isn't about the DSM and, and clinical diagnosis of, of anxiety, depression, anorexia, you know, whatever the case, PTSD, uh, borderline personality. It ain't about those clinical diagnostical, uh, you know, standards or, or, or criteria or any of that. Um, mental health is another way to say the human condition where the mind, body, and spirit converge and, and it, it creates the, the perceivable existence of, of human beings, mankind. That's what mental health is. And so we see a decay, a, a profound decay at that intersection. And this is a good example because, hey, some people, some people's history, culture, upbringing, beliefs, uh, whatever the case may be, um, have them willing to die, have them willing to, to worse, not only die for, but, but kill themselves in the pursuit of, of their agenda, an agenda, a mission, a goal, a belief. That's, that's sad. That's terrifying. That's that's horrible, but I just want to say when people make the decision that they're willing to kill themselves and they're really committed to it, unfortunately, there's not much other people can do. I mean, and that's that's the tough part about being human. That really, that that you know, it's it's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to live with, and and part of that is genuine. I don't want to indict people for having a sense of care for their fellow man that they hear somebody makes the decision to commit suicide and there's not much you can do. And, and you still have that sense of there has to be something we can do. There has to be something that, that I, that I could have done. Um, maybe, maybe there was something you could have done that you missed. Maybe there was, maybe there's something you can do that you can still do. It's possible for sure. For sure, but but you have to make that assessment, and at some point you have to be realistic with yourself. At some point, like Father Ripperger said, you have to understand that the the levels of spiritual warfare. And and first off, what are you equipped to actually to actually deal with? You know, if any of these, and and here's here's where I, I here's where I want to try and connect it for the context of this conflict in the Middle East and the region and the Iranians. Some of you would have trouble, some of you are having trouble dealing with the, uh, the su suicidal tendencies, the suicidal ideation, the, the, the proclivity of suicide from people in your own family, community, uh, extended community, et cetera. I mean, we're having real trouble dealing with getting a grip on the, the suicide epidemic we have here in our own country which is bipartisan. I mean, there is a bipartisan agreement that the mental health of the United States of America is in great peril. Now, some people would make, would, would argue um, what constitutes mental health and, and what constitutes, uh, what constitutes mental health that is of organic disease, what constitutes mental health that is of social, you know, nature versus nurture, for lack of a better phrase. Mental health conditions that are coming from people being oppressed, being, you know, persecuted, being, you know, bullied and so on and so forth. And then organic 
mental illness that's coming from chemical process and, and some would argue spiritual process, deep demonic possession, things like that. And that's a good conversation to have. And then if you can, I probably will end up there at some point because I definitely want to talk about liberalism and just how psychotic I think that's become. But for now, I digress. We're having troubles with our own suicide culture here in America. So what makes any of you think that you're going to go to Iran and change Iran's willingness to die for their beliefs? Honestly, I mean, let's just be, let's just, let's just talk like adults. I mean, let's be realistic. I mean, do you think any level of kumbaya that you sing here in the West, that you sing in America or Europe or Australia or wherever you woke liberals, you know, want to want to protest and wave your flags. Do you think any level of kumbaya is going to fundamentally change what the Ayatollah and the Iranians believe about their their position in the world, that their culture, their faith, and what they're willing to do, what level they're willing to go to in order to, you know, in order to achieve whatever whatever goal they have? Do you think you're going to be able to change the Iranians' willingness to die? for their beliefs? My thought would be no. I mean, if I'm being honest, if there was a shot, if there was a shot in the dark that somebody here in the West could could use their oratory, could use their, their mind, could use their spirit, their love, their grace, their charity to change the, the fundamental position of some of these uh, Iranian leaders or, or some of these Middle Eastern or Arab or Muslim uh, peoples, um, the, the, level, the level of intellectual and, and uh, spiritual wisdom that would, would be needed to, to um, inspire a transformation like that, we don't even play in that currency. I mean, we don't even we don't even talk like that. We don't even we don't we don't we surely don't live like that. But we don't even bring ourselves to talk like that often. Like me personally, like if I could write a letter to the Ayatollah, um, I think I'm a fairly intellectual and, and uh, insightful human being. And I wrote a letter. If you go to my Substack, I wrote a letter to Vladimir Putin. I thought Vladimir Putin at a moment in time was in a significant position to be. Um, one of the key deciding factors in whether this country or, or whether this global community goes into nuclear war or not. And I think he's still in that position in many ways. So I wrote him a letter. Probably would never read it. Maybe he did see it. Maybe not. Never preclude miracles. But I'm dealing in that kind of currency. I mean, when you have a protest, um, in New York City with a bunch of trans activists in support of a country that's being supported by another country that is completely anti-LGBTQ in every fundamental way, why do you think those people would be inspired to do, do something? To, well, you don't think that. That's the whole point. And that's what I'm getting at here, is that the, the, much of the Western leftist, progressive, liberal, Political activism is not rooted in life. It's not rooted in living. It's not rooted in peace. 
It's not rooted in love. It's not rooted in grace or charity. It's not rooted in, 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 in you know, sanctity. It's rooted in nihilism. And so you continuously see the progressive, left, liberal, political activism in America be connected to other nihilist, nihilistic ideologies. And even if some of the even if some of the content of their protest has truth or validity to it, the spirit of it, the impulse of it is rooted in nihilism. Which does categorically delegitimize it, <laughs> right? Because and, and, and the contradiction starts to show the contradiction starts to starts to be obvious, too blatant to 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 look away from. I mean, why would you want to save the Palestinians? I mean, let's just be honest. See, I would actually like to, I, 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 you know, ideally, I would love to be able to have a conversation with the powers that be and broker some type of peace accord so that people could stop dying, like Donald Trump said. Let's, we just want people to stop dying. Now, his position there in Israel and Palestine may be different than it was in Ukraine with Ukraine and Russia, and rightfully so. They're two different con conflicts with two very different histories, with two very different agendas. But ultimately, the, the same agenda is the same agenda. It's a satanic agenda, and we want death and, and destruction. They want death and destruction. Satan wants death and destruction. We, I, we the people should want peace, love, charity. At least the Christians should anyway. But my point is, if I could write a letter, I would actually want there to be peace because I would actually come from a position where life, life being the, the, the thing with which we should be most grateful, the thing we should have the most gratitude is this blessing of, of, of charity and grace from God to be able to exist and to be able to point ourselves to and accept and love God, to submit to God. But a lot of these leftists, number one, they don't believe in God. And because they don't believe in God, it's hard for them to believe in life, which is why you can go find a correlation between the people who do 100-foot story building, I mean, 100-story building, 100-story building parkour, or, you know, skydive or, you know, rock climb with, with, no, with no harness, you know, whatever, whatever um, self-absorbed, self-centered, nihilist thing that they can possibly conjure up in their head to show their, their rejection and their, their, um, their disdain, their self-loathing, maybe it's, maybe it's resent. Maybe people resent themselves and find themselves unworthy of God's charity and love. That actually makes sense. But at the moment where that becomes suicidal or risky, it becomes a sin. And this is why this is why the structure of faith, religion, church, institutions give you that that wisdom and guidance on the margin so you don't lose yourself in your own intellect and your own interpretation of, of existence because it's easy to do. I mean, one could see where you would think to yourself, man, I'm so unworthy of God's choosing me that I might as well kill myself, right? Well, I mean, that's a, 
you you can follow the logic, but it's an unreasonable thought. And actually, Christ plays an integral role in what would make that greatly unreasonable. Now, should you be willing to in, endure, incur suffering, and 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 if, if need be, sacrifice yourself for your faith? Yes, yes, and that's what our faith teaches us. And without saying they're exactly the same, which no Christian should do, but the Islamic faith has a very similar sentiment about their ideas of faith. They're willing to die. They're willing to sacrifice at some level. Battle cruiser there in the Mediterranean made them a little shaky. And I'm calling into question everybody's willingness to die, everybody's commitment, right? I mean, when the threat of nuclear war actually is on the table, small tactical nukes, cruise missiles, the whole thing, when it's actually on the table, you start to see very clearly how people's faith really isn't what they say it is. Right? So we have this, this dichotomy, this pendulum, this, this swinging between people not having any faith and then their, their, their sort of uh, image of themselves and their actions become perverted in the absence of faith. And then you have people who have faith who say they're willing to die and sacrifice themselves, but when the moment comes, they show a, a lack of willingness to do so. So we got a lot of shit in the pot here. I mean, we got a lot of stuff cooking in here. Um, the Iranians are going to do what the Iranians are going to do. If they want to have a fight, if they want to go to war, we're going to war. And there's no amount of leftist, progressive, liberal kumbaya that's going to stop that. There's no amount of free Palestine movement that's going to stop that. If Hamas wants to have a fight with Israel, now they got one. Now they got one. The question that people must ask, the history that people must, re must refer to, is just like there in China, whether or not the Uyghur Muslims had a legitimate reason to, to rebel or revolt against the Chinese government in the first place. With China, the answer is yes. Of course they did. Of course they had a reason to say, I mean, and, the, and what really makes this quite clear um, is you have two schools of thought here. You have a school of thought where modern society and its industrial and technological advancement is so efficient, it's working so good, there's been so much done and accomplished that any level of tyranny that really pops up only exists on the margins and you should be, you should be relatively accepting of, of that level of tyranny. It just comes with society. Right. That's sort of a Jordan Peterson line of thought, to be honest. When, when you hear Jordan Peterson actually talk about tyranny, unless it's pointed right at him uh, or, or the, the, what they call the alt-right, alt which would include me too, Unless the tyranny is pointed right at you, uh, then there's kind of this laissez-faire approach or attitude about tyranny itself. Like, yeah, societies are tyrannical, right? And you'll hear Jordan Peterson say that a lot. It's like, yeah, yeah, no, there's no doubt society is tyrannical. Does that make it solely a tyrannical patriarchy? No. And that would be true as well. It's not only tyranny. There is competence. There are other things that, that are at work. But the question is, how much tyranny should we accept? And even now on the right, we are starting to have to question 
how much tyranny we can take here in our own country. Here in our own country, we are starting to ask ourselves how much tyranny we should accept. Jordan is, I am, Alex Jones is, the great Steve Bannon is, Donald Trump is, and you can go right on down the list. Now in our own nation, here in the West even, we are starting to have to decide how much tyranny is too much tyranny. How much tyranny is unacceptable. And the, the, great, the great problem here, as I see it, is the right-wing movements of, of political activism all around the world are a half step behind in their identification and rebellion against tyranny. And thus, the people who actually revolt or rebel against tyranny end up being people who do it from a nihilistic root and not a righteous root. I think I said that right. I hope you can follow that. We're behind the eight ball. We, the right wing, the populist movement, the far right, the, the whatever demographic description that these tyrants want to give us, we're behind the eight ball here. We're letting our enemies define the terms of engagement. We're letting them define the game. And in them defining the game, not only are they defining the game for themselves over there on the far left, they also end up defining the game for us right here where we are. And so we look at the Iranians and go, they're willing to die for their beliefs. That makes them savages. Well, that makes them committed. That makes them believers. Whether I agree with their belief or not, the, the reality is they're believers. Now their belief gets a little shaky because everybody's belief get a little shaky when at the end of the barrel of a gun. And you should, caution, you should heed that same warning. That's a cautionary tale. Everybody thinks their beliefs are, are ironclad until you're at the end of the barrel of a gun. I'm just telling you what the way it is. I, I know you don't even, a lot of people wouldn't even like this sort of juxtaposition, but it's real. This is the reality. This is what they want. This is what you can't find anywhere else. All of these, all of these mainstream media and even some alternative mainstream media pundits come to you with this story. And it just has a tilt to it that's so inorganic. It's, 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 it's obnoxious. Like Steve Bannon said about watching Fox News with the neocon thing, it's obnoxious. That's why you can, you can barely even watch it because it's so obnoxious. There's no, there's no, there's no genuineness. There's no authenticity to it. Yes, the Iranians are believers. The Iranians believe they're willing to fight and die and kill for what they believe in. If you want to say that makes them savages, well, then you've now placed them ahead of us and our willingness to fight, die, and kill for what we believe in. But see, we have this thin veil of, of false security in, in our culture, in our belief system, that law, the law, that the rule of law and law and order or our politicians or lawmakers will uphold the moral and ethic to a point where we won't have to fight, die, or kill, uh, fight, die, fight, kill, or die 
for our beliefs about being American citizens and the freedoms that we hold dear, the truths that we hold self-evident. We think that our elites will uphold the moral and ethic so we never have to do the dying. And the, the, the sad part about it is that actually could be a function of this country and our nation and our government if we had real leadership, but we don't. And so the Iranians are ahead of us. And Hamas is ahead of us. And Israel is ahead of us. I mean, Israel, whatever you want to say about them, however you feel about what they're doing, clearly, maybe, maybe by default, maybe out of necessity, the Israelis are willing to fight, kill, and die for their beliefs. Whether it's their belief in Judaism, whether it's their belief in Zionism, whether it's their belief in and Israel's right to exist as a state, whether it's their belief in the Jewish identity, whatever that, whether it's their, 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 in some cases, hatred of Muslims or, or uh, difference of belief and, and faith, whatever it is, they're willing to fight, kill, and die for their beliefs. Hamas is willing to fight, kill, and die for their beliefs. The Russians are willing to fight, kill, and die for their beliefs. We here in America, we're getting kind of, we're getting way off into a, a place where we are almost paralyzed in, in our political activism. And the reason why is we've let the left here in America define what should be the most abundant freedom fighting movement in the free world. The conservative, right wing, Republican, Patriotic, Libertarian, Christian, Catholic, Protestant movement, populist movement in America should be the most profound freedom-fighting movement in the entire world, and we're barely even scratching the surface. And the Steve Bannons have to come out and beg you to get involved. And the Donald Trumps have to beg you to stay engaged. And I'm just, I'm just telling you like it is. I'm just telling you like it is and your neocons see this is how this is how they this is how they brainwash you and trick you. They get a Mark Levin to come out and tell you that the Iranian that's willing to die for their beliefs is the savage which in a way kind of kind of discourages you to be able to die and fight for your beliefs. They want to promote it like they're trying to encourage you to be willing to fight and die for your beliefs against the Iranian but Really what they're saying is the willingness itself to fight and, and kill and die for your beliefs is a sort of savagery that we've evolved out of, right? And there's a sort of poshness to that. There's a, there's a modern uh, lux uh, there's a modern luxury to that. May end up being our downfall. We the people, American citizens. The Iranians want to go up in a blaze of glory anyway. So, I mean, that's in their future. Hamas obviously wanted to fight. I mean, when you roll up to another country, I don't care what you say about the history, and we'll go into the history in a moment, but I don't care what you say about the history. When you roll up to another country, and Israel is a country, whether you like it or not, whether you say the government there was created by another body and blah, 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 blah. If you're there and there's a people and there's a government and it's recognized by those people and they're willing to fight, kill, and die for that boundary, you now have a nation. 
So the nation is there. The nation of Israel exists. It just does, whether you like it or not. I mean, you can spend all your time in your local kumbaya jerking off talking about how it's not a nation. Uh, it's a it's a nation. It has a border. It defends its border. Its people believe in that border. Its people believe in 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 their identity enough to have nuclear submarines and and an iron dome and 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 enough to broker a deal with the American people. You to pay for it. So they exist. They exist well enough. And I always wonder if the be. Imagine, imagine that the leftist, progressive, liberal, BLM types who are all pro-Palestine, free Palestine movement, how many of them are revolting against the IRS? How many of them are, are uh, you know, are doing a tax boycott? Let's check the numbers. Let's check them. You don't like, you don't like the Iron Dome being funded? Why are you paying your taxes still? Oh, because you got to pay your taxes for, for welfare? Uh, for the the Medicaid, Medi- Obamacare. Oh, you got to pay for Obamacare, right? I mean, you you, you got to pay your extra <clears throat> fair share for the uh, the e- the environmental crisis, right? The EV initiative or diversity, equity, and inclusion in the public schools. I mean, whatever your justification is, the point is, at some point, everybody's a part of the problem that they seem to want to protest against. And as soon as we sort this out, that out and get real honest about it, as soon as we sort out those contradictions, at least we know where everybody stands. We can't even figure out where everybody stands because you're standing halfway in, halfway out of every issue. <laughs> in fact, in most cases, you're, you're actively involved in supporting one issue financially uh, through your tax money while simultaneously protesting that issue. Scary. So whatever you want to say about Israel, you can say it. But the reality is the reality. They're a nation because they believe they're a nation, because their people are willing to defend them as such. So when you roll up to another nation and you attack another nation, you want to fight. That's what it is. That's what it is. And it's a very, very... <clears throat> hostage taking, whether it was the hostages that Hamas took out of Israel or embedding themselves in the Palestinian population, it's a very difficult thing to deal with hostage taking situations. We all know it. We've all seen it. It's been played out in our Hollywood, in our in our most beloved Hollywood films. I remember I was watching The Negotiators, a great, great film with Samuel Jackson and Kevin Spacey. If if, if any of you have never seen it, you should watch it. Um, but but it it just shows the dynamic of a hostage-taking situation. Now, in that movie, Samuel Jackson took hostages because he was being improperly framed for a crime he didn't commit, and by taking the hostages, he ended up uncovering the truth about being framed. Not the same situation we're in right now. I mean, Hamas certainly has a view that under no circumstances can there be peace with Israel. I mean, that's a tough position to take. I mean, when you want to say, you know, no peace, there can be no peace, then you you asking for a fight. That's just what it is. 
I mean, that's just the reality. I don't care how you want to spin it. That's the reality. When you roll up to another nation, when you roll up to another nation and you start shooting rockets, you are now in a fight. And then when you embed yourself in the Palestinian people, it makes it very difficult to, to, to operate, to deal with that. See, having some real sacred honor, I mean, if you're really willing to die for what you believe in, having some real sacred honor would be we go and fight in Israel and we die in Israel. We're not retreating back to Palestine. We're staying in Israel and we're going to die right here in Israel. That would be that would be sacred honor. That would be a more legitimate way to go about it. I'm just saying. But as soon as you kind of cower back and, and, and you hide yourself amongst children or you use human shields, as, you know, you know, children as human shields and shit like you're just a coward. That's just what it is. Now, the, the question becomes. What level of moral responsibility is there on us in the West being a dedicated ally of Israel and support of Israel? What moral responsibility is there on us to mitigate the number of casualties um, in, in any retaliation? Difficult. Difficult to, to, to deal with. Very, very difficult to deal with. Very difficult question to answer. Not easy. Not easy. And anybody who says, anybody who says it's easy is lying to you at number one. Anybody who has a knee-jerk response and says finish them all like Nikki Haley is a psychopath. <laughs> I mean, she's just psycho. She's psychotic. Uh, and there's probably a lot of Republicans or conservatives that would that would echo a similar sentiment in their in their public affection for the, the state of Israel. But there's nothing legit, there's nothing sacred, there's no honor in that. I mean, there's just no honor in talking about things in those terms. It, it just really is it's childish, it's immature. It's, it's far more immature than me using the word fuck on the podcast. I mean, when you make, and that, that's, what, that's what blows my mind is I see people criticize my use of profanity on the podcast, but these would be the same people who have knee-jerk reactions in one direction or the other that are completely intemperate. I mean, it's just like, you know, that is much more profane to say finish them all as a potential presidential candidate than me saying the word fuck on my nightly podcast. And the, the fact that American citizens writ large don't, don't necessarily understand that or, or haven't grasped that is a, is a huge indictment of, of where we are as a culture. There's a moral responsibility that we have not to sink to the level of our enemies. And when we fail to do that, when we fit, it's not just about winning, it's about how you win. That's why my, my candidacy, my Senate campaign, is not just about winning, it's about telling the truth. It's not just about winning, it's about how you win. If you cheat to win, that's not winning. That's what the Chinese think. That's, what, that's how the CCP thinks, that if you cheat and win, then it's still winning. But it's not winning. And the reason why it's not winning is because we have a Christian ethic. Whether you, whether you like it or not, whether you believe in God or not, that United States Constitution has God in it for a reason. A creator. That, that Constitution has, has reference to a creator in it for a reason. Because there is an ethic that came out of Christianity that informed our beliefs 
are truths that we hold self-evident. And if we're going to defend a nation, if we're going to defend a nation in the name of patriotism or in the name of our faith or our rights to be as God wants us to be, then we have to be that way. We have to strive to be that way. So there is a moral responsibility on us to go about our, our, um, our, our aiding of Israel, uh, our fight against radical Muslims uh, or Islam or any, or any uh, enemy in a way that reflects our beliefs. See, the fighting and killing and dying for your beliefs is not just a matter of fighting or killing or dying with regards to combat. It's also about your internal, your internal thought process, your spirit. Again, why Father Ripperger's the levels of spiritual warfare was so, was so aptly timed. And uh, I was really happy to be able to share that with you guys right now because I, help, I think it helped inform the level of things uh, with which we need to be thinking about uh, all of this. The level with which we need to be thinking about all these things. Um, we have a duty. We have a moral duty. We have a spiritual duty to, to go about any war the best, the best way we can within the framework of our, of our faith. Does that mean that we should let people kill us? No. Does that mean we should let, no. That mean we should let people walk all over, no. Blackmail us, no. Of course not. Absolutely not. The retribution should be, should be harsh, should be fierce, should be swift if it can be. There's no doubt about it. The question is, how do we wound ourselves in the process? Do you, do you even start from a place where you believe you can be wounded in the process of exacting retribution? Because if you don't, then you're not a Christian. If you don't, you're not a Catholic. If you don't believe that your own spirit could be wounded in the process with which you carry out revenge, you don't believe in God. A cautionary tale to my Jewish brothers and sisters there in Israel especially the ones who believe in God and my friends out there who are Jewish, who rightfully so in their, in their emotional and passionate, in their emotional state, their, their fear, their, their rage, their anger, um, say things that, that, that aren't necessarily in alignment with, the, with, the, with their beliefs, with the tenets of their faith. And if you, if you are going to, and, and this is where I caution uh, my Jewish brothers and sisters as well, as well as my Muslim brothers and sisters, and even, the, and even us Christians, because, you know, we're not directly involved in this, in this war per se, but, but we are indirectly involved in it. If you're going to fly that flag, if you're going to fly the flag of God, if you're going to claim to be doing things in righteousness, if, you, if you're going to claim to be doing things in the name of faith, you better damn sure well have your, your, your spiritual house in order. You better damn sure have your spiritual house in order. Because if you don't, you're taking the Lord's name in vain. 
and you'll go up in a ball of flames. That's just the reality. If you claim to be doing things in the name of, of, of God and you don't have your spiritual house in order, you will go up in a ball of flames. See, I would be so I would be so concerned. <clears throat> I would be so concerned about whether or not my spiritual house was in order. Uh, I would I would um I would be slow to wage any real real um definitive conflicts in the name of God. That would be me. But hey, make your decision, live with your decision. I know in general, I, I see a society that's very arrogant in their own uh in their view of themselves. Very arrogant in their view of themselves and their in their their current position spiritually, morally, right, socially, politically. Everybody thinks they know it all. No humility. No real humility. The death of humility in our culture is 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 a canary in the coal mine for sure. Everybody's so sure that they're doing things for the right reasons. Certainly our opponents, the communists, they think the same way. They think any 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 means justifies the end. That the end justifies any means, I'm sorry. That's what they think. I mean, they're almost open about it. You know, you got Hillary Clinton say we're going to formally, formally re-educate people. We're going to become we're going to become the CCP in in order to make sure that these radical Republicans don't slow up the the business as usual in in Washington D.C. or anywhere else in in our political culture in the political landscape. Do we want to be more like Hillary or less like Hillary? Do we want to abandon all of our morals and ethics in pursuit of our, our goals and uh, our agenda? Because if we do, by all means, I mean, let's just have an all-out war. Fine. If that's what it's come to. If that's what it's come to, fine. But just know nobody's going to get out unscathed. There will be ramifications on entire nations for the things that transpire now. And if you don't believe that, then you're not a Christian. If you don't believe that, then you don't believe in God. So what do we do? What do what can be done there in Palestine? What can what can what can feasibly be done? Are the bombs are the are you know how how much success you know show me one <clears throat> show me one uh, military expert show me one military official who makes the claim that um the tunnels there in Gaza that are that are more that are bigger that are that are um that are bigger than the New York City subway station Sh show me uh show me one military expert that thinks the airstrikes there in Gaza have have put a dent in uh in in Hamas's forces or or has struck a significant blow 
and the overall threat that, that's posed by that underground tunnel system there in Gaza. Show me one expert who says that they're making, that they're making progress there in Gaza. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just showing you where this thing is headed. Where this thing is headed is we're going to have to send troops. We're going to have to send troops. I mean, that's just what it's going to be. Or there's going to be a, an extensive and long-term ground war with, with Israel. And, and, and look, you know, it, it, at some point it becomes a, a game of numbers. How many troops, you know, how many troops can they actually, how many troops can, can Israel actually surrender to the effort to clear out those tunnels there in Gaza while simultaneously defending the other, the other borders uh, um, that, that are a threat? Now, will those Arab nations or Muslim nations even attack in the end? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Hezbollah has a has a you know has a formidable force has a formidable number of troops. Iran obviously is an entirely different beast. But right now America's presence seems to be holding Iran off per Iran's own admission. That tunnel fighting is going to be nasty. It's going to be it's going to be dirty. It's going to it's going to be ugly. And if you want to, you know, in, in fairness to Israel, for all you people who are saying, you know, you're pro Hamas. I mean, if you say you're pro Hamas, you've already you're you're a psychopath. Number one, um, if you're saying free Palestine, if you believe Palestine was is is under uh, an illegal or uh, illegitimate occupation, there's some legitimacy to that. I mean, if the if you if you can't go back in the history and, and understand that. I mean, you just, you know, you're not being honest. However, I, I think it's fair to point out that Palestine was offered a two-state solution on three occasions by the historical record. Uh, they were offered, offered a, a state on three different occasions, and they rejected it all three times. Sometimes as a precursor to all-out war. So not only did they not want peace, did they not want their own state, or they weren't willing to, to compromise on their own state, they said, not only, you know, and we're going to war with you right now. Let's let, we're going. So there's that history. <laughs> right. I mean, to think that that we're talking about a situation where one side or the other just categorically wants peace and the other side is, is just the uh, the warmongers or the the, the instigators is um, a misrepresentation of history. A gross misrepresentation of history, to say the least. So there's going to be a fight there. We're in it now. But in fairness to Israel, let's be clear. They're saying that the number of Palestinians has been killed is 10,000. And if you watch those videos, if you see one, one person who's been killed, who's, whose life has left their body, and the debris and rubble uh, and, and this sort of look of, of, of dust and, and you know this, this, this look of instant death in their face, uh, is is still there in some of these pictures and videos. If 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 you if you don't feel that, um, I question I question this the, the stability of your own 
your own psyche. I question uh, your, I question you. I question your, your, uh, your humanity. I really do. Because obviously everybody who's been killed there in Palestine isn't Hamas. They're not a terrorist. They may be, they may be sympathetic to Hamas's overall political cause. Um, but, but certainly if Hamas, well, let's put it this way, if Hamas had the type of support in Palestine for their cause, then the amount of people that would have invaded Israel on October 7th would have been far greater than the number that did. If the, if the, if the hatred, not even the hatred, let's just say commitment. If the commitment of the people in Palestine uh, was far and away uh, very similar or widespread like Hamas, then there would have been a million people who invaded Israel on October 7th. But there wasn't. Because Hamas knows that the Palestinians, all of the Palestinians or a large number of the Palestinians aren't committed, willing, uh, um, ready to die for the cause. Which is the same problem that people who are fighting against an opponent or an establishment or a superior force are facing all around the world. Us here in America, we're facing the same thing. The people who went to Washington, D.C. on January 6th did so with the knowledge that the wide masses of American citizens are not even willing to demonstrate for the cause they say they believe in, let alone go to jail or, in the worst-case scenario, sacrifice their life. You see the similarities. With all that being said, 10,000 is, is a number that's uh, tragic. But if Israel really wanted to, it could be 500,000. It could be a million. And my question again to the progressives and the liberals and the left is, why are you fronting? Why are you acting like life is like, like there's a sanctity of life all of a sudden? My main point here is, is not to even make a, a, a definitive claim about the conflict between Israel and Palestine because there's so much baked in history, it's hard to even, you know, talk in that way. There is no definite way to talk about Israel and Palestine, which is what I tried to tell Jason. There's no simple way to talk about blacks and Jews or the conflict there in Israel or the history. There's nothing simple about it, really. Anybody who tries to simplify it, they're probably doing it because they're too dumb to, to account for the the very complicated, convoluted history and, and articulate something original out of it, which most often is going to be something like, we got a huge pile of shit right here, <laughs> which we do. Um, but why are these liberals and leftists fronting? Y'all don't have no sanctity of life. You don't, you don't believe in life as a, as a fundamental gratitude that one should hold about, about human existence, about existence in, in general. Life is not a fundamental tenet of your political ideology. So why all of a sudden when it's a, when it's a, uh, when it's a nation or it's, a, it's a, a resistance that's obviously anti-West and anti-colonial per the narrative, uh, why all of a sudden are you pro-life? So you're pro-life in Palestine, but you're pro-choice in America. You're pro-life when it comes to the Palestinian children, but you're 
pro-abortion when it comes to little black children. See, these are the things that I just won't accept. These are the contradictions I just can't accept. These are the reasons why I'm willing to let these black folks call me a bootlicker or Uncle Tom or whatever you want to say. This shit don't matter to me. And it's not because I'm looking for any approval from any uh, white, middle-aged, boomer Protestants because I criticize them the same way. And there's a bunch of 501c3 Christian rhino Republicans and all of them get it the same way. All of them get the same criticism. When I see bullshit, I smell bullshit, I call bullshit. All across the board. But right now I'm getting especially insulted. I'm offended. Honest to God, I'm offended that, that, that people would actually have the audacity to come onto their social media or any other public platform and make the case for Palestine on the basis of sanctity of life. When it's very clear that the death and debt culture that has consumed the West is just as much a tenant of liberalism and the, the leftist ideology as it is the neocon and right-wing ideology. You people love debt and death. It's fundamental to the culture. As soon as we get a chance to, to, to get involved in some, in some political theater there on the global stage and jump on one side or the other, now all of a sudden all of these things are important to us that have never, never really been important to us before or at least in our own country. Everybody has these, you know, everybody has these passionate opinions about Palestine. What about Chicago? What about, what about, what, you know, what, what about Margaret Sanger? Nothing? Nothing? That's just a right-wing conspiracy theory? That, that's just a, a right-wing talking point? I mean, life is life. You want to do the numbers? Let's do the numbers. If you want to make life and death a matter of math, which is already radical materialist in my opinion. It, it, lacks, a, it lacks a certain spiritual, uh, you know, a, a certain level of spiritual insight to say the least. But if you want to do math, let's just do the math. Ten thousand Palestinians have been killed in an open war between Palestine and Israel that Hamas started. They started it most recently, right? At each juncture where there was some type of relative peace and then they carried on and they made those decisions as those two nations. I mean, if they, all, if they wanted all-out war, I mean, we all look on from afar and, and think what one side or the other should or shouldn't be doing. Those two groups of people, those two places, those two nations get to decide as a people what they want to do for themselves. And at each juncture where they didn't go to all-out war, they, they had chosen peace. And at the point where one group decided to attack the other group, whether it be Israel attacking or, or being brutal or whatever it is there in Palestine or Palestine, loading up front loaders and rockets and, and attacking Israel, whatever the case is, I'm not there. But whatever the case is, when they chose war, now, we're, now they're at war. They chose war. And so in choosing war, you don't get to say, oh, we didn't know, but, but we, we all don't want. No, 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 absolutely not. And the people of Palestine, the people of Palestine, um, you know, who knows what the, 
you know, and this is, uh, before I go there, let me say this. A common thread in this narrative is the people of Palestine have an overwhelming support of Hamas. Who knows if that's true? Who knows if the people there in Palestine actually support Hamas or if they're scared to say that they don't support Hamas? We don't know. Did the people there in Nazi Germany really, really support Hitler and Germany when they took the census? Or were they afraid that the brown coats would come and black bag them and disappear them if they say they didn't support Hitler? We don't know. We don't know. Are the people there in China really in support of China? Or are they just afraid to say they're not in support of China? We don't know. It's hard to say. Are the people here in America really in support of Joe Biden? Or are they just afraid to be seen saying that they don't support Joe Biden? We don't know. So there's that whole psychology. But one thing I can tell you is that when the spirit of a people really wants to change its leadership, oh, they do it. (laughs) When the spirit of the majority wants to overthrow its leadership, they do it. So at some level, the Palestinians are either too afraid to throw Hamas off or, in another scenario, they actually do fundamentally agree with uh, much of of what Hamas's uh, cause is. And so I hate to say it this way, I really do, because when you talk about children, the one, the one, the, the most terrible thing in this is the children and the women and the children, to be honest, because the women and the children are, 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 um, are supposed to be kept by the men, right? They're supposed to be kept by the men. So when the men decide or allow or, or accept to engage in war and the women and the children become the victim of those choices, that is tragic. And it's terrible to see women and children die in war. Anybody to die in war, but especially the women and the children. That used to be a Western ethic. Now all of a sudden, you know, women are equal to men and, and children, I guess, don't matter at all because we'll vaccinate them in the interest of the elderly. I mean, tch. We're, we just got the shit all the way backwards. So it's hard for me to understand how we make any moral claims when our, our morality is so warped to begin with. But let me help. I'll lead. I'll just talk us through it. Let's think about it as a, let's, let's think about it together. Okay. Israel could have already completely destroyed Palestine. They're showing some restraint. I mean, they are, but just categorically, measurably speaking, Israel has the military arsenal to completely destroy Gaza. They really do. I mean, when they say level Gaza, they those people who said it, first off, they're saying it flippantly and arrogantly and in and, and a sort of immature, uh, boisterous kind of way, which is never a way to talk about war at all in my opinion. Um, But it it comes from an informed place that Israel has a sort of military supremacy that would, in effect, uh, make it very easy for them to completely destroy Gaza. And they haven't done that yet, at least per the numbers. And I'm watching all of the the pro-Palestinian media. I mean, I'm, I'm watching for that 
that that you know for them to cross that line because there is a line out there and there there is a line for in multiple directions and when people cross that line other people need to step up and 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 you know be honest and speak out speak out on that against that but they haven't crossed that line yet well, let's just be honest that's not in defense of Israel I don't like what they're doing right now but they haven't crossed the line where they've completely blown Gaza to pieces now what are they asking from the Palestinian people honestly what are they asking is what Israel is asking for the Palestinian from the Palestinian people reasonable I would say no it's not reasonable it's just not reasonable to ask them to um to flee Palestine uh, completely into the desert. And I heard one guy make the case, you know, why won't anybody else take them? Why won't anybody else take the Palestinians? Why, you know, almost to say as if other people not taking the Palestinians is a justification to completely uh, kill every last one of them. It justifies the genocide. Well, that's the same argument that was used against the Jews. It's just a fact. You can like it. You can not like it. Doesn't really matter much to me. It's a categorical fact that the very argument that's being used to justify genocide against the Palestinians now was used to justify genocide against the Jews before. Nobody else in Europe wants them. Nobody else in Europe will take them. They're too, they're too dirty and vicious and ugly and, 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 and uh, dishonest or, or whatever, whatever other pejorative was used against the Jews by, by Hitler and the Nazis in, in Europe. Nobody else will take them. Nobody else wants them. So since they're ours, we'll do whatever we want to them. Not good. Not good at all. I mean, the fact that that the fact that that type of rhetoric rhetoric is even being floated out there is a huge sign of moral decadence. Moral decadence. This isn't about BLM. Stop, stop using Black Lives Matter liberals, progressive leftists, to define yourself politically, to define yourself morally, to define yourself spiritually. If you allow your enemies to define you, you are nothing but a reflection of them. You cannot allow your enemies to define who you are. So what if BLM is pro-Hamas? So what if the radical feminists or the leftists or the other people who want to see the United States fall are pro-Hamas? So what if the entire Arab and, and anti-colonial world is, is, is pro-Hamas, or their, their sentiments around free Palestine come from a political agenda, from a political, uh, a political purpose, a political perspective, and not a truly moral, a genuine moral perspective. So what? That does not mean we allow ourselves to be perverted by them. And when you use moral arguments like that, like nobody else will take them, you're a Nazi. 
And I don't care if you're black, you're white, you're Jewish, you're Christian, you're Muslim. I don't care what you are. When you use that kind of argument from a logical standpoint, from a first principle standpoint, you are a Nazi. And as we've as become as is becoming very clear, it's becoming quite obvious here all around the world, there are Nazis from all over the world. Because it's not really Nazism. It has nothing to do with Germany. It's Darwinism. It's 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 uh it's 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 a, it's a, a sort of inhumanity bred in scientific method and a bunch of a bunch of other pseudoscientific uh, sociological uh, you know ideologies. Nobody else will take them. Is that what I mean? Yeah. Okay. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Egypt won't take them, you know. Is it, and when you get to that level again, and I said it before, I think Iran is on the payroll. Egypt's on the payroll. We're on every side of the deal. That's that's a fact. And this goes for all the people who are radically pro-Israel on the matter. We're on every side of the deal. So if we really loved Israel, if we really had this affection for Israel, if, if Israel is our greatest ally in, in the region. Why have we spent so much time dealing, you know, doing deals with, with all of their mortal enemies? I don't know. Same reason we're doing deals with our mortal enemies, I guess. We have no boundaries. We have no moral and ethical boundaries anymore. Everything is a mathematical equation. You people have no spiritual wisdom. You think you could do away with all of the spiritual anchors of our culture. And when you do that, you end up doing deals with the same people that want to kill you. Or maybe they want to kill you because you're doing deals from a place that's so immoral. It's hard for me to know. I don't know. I don't know what the CIA's been doing over there in the Persian Gulf. Actually, I do know what they've been doing over there. It's completely immoral. Stirring shit up is what they've been doing. And making the American taxpayer pay for it. Stirring shit up, and when there's a conflict, it doubles as a, as a, as a positive for them because it, it justifies their continued presence in the region. And, and, if, and, if, if lottery, uh, and hitting the lottery, oh, let a war pop off. That's like the military-industrial complex hitting a lottery and a bunch of people getting paid, a bunch of people getting paid from it, using the Jews, using the Palestinians, using the narratives, whatever narrative they need, whatever platform they need. Doesn't matter. We're going to war. It made me sick to watch that Republican debate and see all of those neocons up there parrot the same bullshit interventionist foreign policy that has plagued this country for the last 50 years, 60 years. Infuriating. Even worse, to see them walk a bunch of RNC shills in there, a bunch of fucking donor class cucks, cuck conservatives in there, to clap like seals every time one of them mentions the military-industrial complex. It's disgusting. It's disgraceful. It's despicable. Spit on the floor. When I meet Ronna Romney McDaniel, Mrs. Mrs. He won't get a dollar from the RNC, I'm going to spit right on the floor in front of her. A lot of you, lot of you conservatives who say that you're willing to fight, that you're willing to fight 
kill and die for the country wouldn't even be willing to show Ronald McDaniel the, the slightest ounce of 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 dis, disdain uh, upon meeting her. I'm just keeping it real. I watch. I'm seeing it. I'm seeing a lot of these Republican, uh, you know, political conventions or, or get togethers or or meet and greets or whatever the case may be. You people are way too polite. You people are way too laissez faire about the current state of this country. And in that in 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 in, in that observation, again, I see where the left has defined us. The left goes to protest. We don't want to protest. Mark Levin says the Iranians and the Palestinians are savages because they're willing to fight, they're willing to fight, kill, and die for their faith, and all of us aren't willing to fight, kill, and die for our faith. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. This is somber truth. And it's it's not a it's not a you know dark you know dark and gloomy. I don't say it to be discouraging. I say it to be inspiring. The same way I try to inspire Jason Whitlock, I'm trying to inspire you. But there's only one way to truly inspire, and that's through the truth. If you want inspiration through lies, you don't really want inspiration. If you want inspiration through through falsehood, then you don't really want inspiration. Inspiration can only come through the truth. Genuine, real inspiration can only come through the truth and finding the inspiration in the truth. The truth is we have very serious decisions to make in this country, and they have to be completely detached from all these prejudgments, these prejudgments and pre-baked stories about how we should feel. I'll tell you how I feel. MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, whoever the fuck else out there, I'll tell you how I feel. And all of you should feel the same way. Start speaking about how you really feel, not how you're supposed to be feeling, not how you're told how to feel. I feel like there is a pile of shit sitting there in that region from the end of World War II that has very little to do with the Palestinians and Israelis, and all of us are supposed to feel some deep, emotional, passionate connection, some hard line we're supposed to stand on one side or the other front of uh, regarding these two tribes of people. I'm not buying it. I'm sitting back watching and thinking, man, if people want to go to war that bad, we can't stop them. Go, go ahead. Go to war. If, if that's what you have to do, who are we to say no? Really? Are, are we, the, are we the, uh, the, the teacher on the playground and we're going to pull kids apart when they, every time they start fighting? If so, fine. Let's do that then. The fightings went on long enough. You got your retribution. 10,000 people. And then I, you know, I had a friend of mine, a Jewish friend, make a very important point. And I want to address this important. Because this is an important point. There's a mathematical equation about the Jews and the Jewish people there in Israel. And... um. This point is something that, that you Muslims out there need to consider. Maybe you do consider. I know certainly some of the more radical extreme ones consider this point, and I'm sure it's a very, very uh, central driving impulse towards, uh, towards your, your actions. It kind of shows. Even if it's not, it feels that way. Even me as a Christian, I kind of 
get the sense that there's a sort of mathematical equation, uh, a very Darwinian equation at work in, in Islam that uh, is, um, is meant to be threatening. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not like passive. It's just meant to, to, to feel that way. Um, proportionality. We're going to hear a lot about proportionality between Israel and, and Hamas. And I had a Jewish friend tell me that from a Jewish perspective, the reason why the Muslims or the Arabs or the, the enemies, the, the self-proclaimed enemies of Israel, talk about proportionality is because there's no proportion to the population size of the Jews or the, the Muslims and the Arabs. And I thought that was deeply insightful. I mean, right away when you hear it, if from a first principle standpoint, you can't, you know, it, it, you don't feel it. Uh, it feel the significance, the weight of that, um, then you're probably just not being honest again. Honestly, right? Is you know, there's 12 million Jews on the planet. 12 million. Or maybe I think there's 12 million that live in, in, in Israel and there's a million or two, maybe there's five million. Maybe there's somewhere around 13 million. I think the latest number is 13, 14 million. It's in the tens of millions, okay? There's 1.1 billion Muslims. There's 90 million Arabs just there in Iran alone. So if the proportionality in the fighting is between Hamas and Israel or Palestine and Israel, that's one thing. But as soon as the Iranian leaders go to the Islamic Arab emergency conference to speak about the conflict between Palestine and Israel, and they talk about the conflict from their standpoint as being a, a, a conflict that, that involves what needs to be a unified Arab and Muslim front. You're no longer talking about a war between Palestine and Israel, so the the comment of proportionality no longer holds true because there is no proportionality between a population size of 12 million and 1.1 billion. That's a very legitimate point to make. And I can acknowledge that. I can, I can hold both views simultaneously. I can hold the view that it's very tragic to see what's taking place with Hamas, with, with Palestine uh, between Israel and Palestine on the Palestinian side and people who are innocent being killed and also hold the view that when the rest of the Arab world calls for a unified Muslim Arab front against the nation of Israel, that there's no proportion to that. So who, who actually is, is acting, um, who is actually being disproportionate these are not easy questions to answer. And I think they've been intentionally made uneasy to answer. And I said that the other day on the Professor Penn podcast, show me a good, show me a good set, give me a good, a good uh reference point or evidence that Iran and the Ayatollah and these guys aren't on the payroll, that they're not, 
that they're not being paid as the controlled opposition to keep the conflict brewing to justify military industrial complex. Show me. Somebody show me. We gave them $6 billion on paper. We, I mean, we gave them $6 billion. Now, we didn't give them the cash, cash, unreleased. I mean, you could talk all that bullshit you want. When you say you're going to give a, a nation a, a certain amount of money, they can then reallocate resources in, within their own economy and their own nation for something else because they see the money coming. They saw the money coming, and then we had an attack. It just is what it is. And that was on Joe Biden's watch, mind you. And the, and the, the, uh, the parent on the playground that's watching the two kids fight, being the American military and the American government, watching this Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, the stepping in part is also on Joe Biden's watch. So you can't simultaneously hold a free Palestine view or a, or a, the Palestinians are being genocided and be in support of Joe Biden because right now he's the commander-in-chief and, and this conflict, wherever it goes, greatly relies upon his decision-making as a leader. I'm just trying to show you how you could spin this ball any way you want to, and somehow the people here in America still fall. You know, you can, you can, you can, you can spin the roulette wheel any way you want, and somehow these, these mainstream media industrial complex shills and these Marxist communist professors and all of their little acolytes and followers and students still land on blue. Regardless, I mean, you you could throw any set of principles and facts and they just constantly find a workaround to continue to support Joe Biden. And I'm not supposed to look at that as some selective outrage that's only used for political agenda. To ultimately support a more communist worldview. Has nothing to do with the actual moral implication or the moral, uh, the moral, um, you know the moral perspective on the matter? How can you be free Palestine but still vote Joe Biden when right now he's in charge? And he said he said that we're going to give unlimited aid to Israel. He offered to send billions of dollars to Israel and $100 million to the Palestinians for relief. That was your president. That was your guy that you want to run again. And it's not just him because the other Democrats in the party that are, that are coming underneath him Talk the same way. Gavin Newsom ain't talking about defunding Israel. <laughs> all of y'all are saying defund Israel, but all of your political leaders are saying fund Israel. You got a few people out there on the fringe that are actually that are actually willing to to go all the way with it, and and they're the controlled opposition on the other side. They're doing it from a proto-communist, anti-American. Middle Eastern and, and Chinese perspective that the only way the world can continue on in a good direction is if the United States of America falls. But then they want to take taxpayer money to be political leaders or elected officials for that country that needs to fall. And I'm supposed to follow these people? I'm supposed to follow Ilhan Omar? America needs to fall? The anti-colonial, the, the, the colonial framework needs to be destroyed? If it wasn't for the colonial framework, you wouldn't be in the House of Representatives. There wouldn't be a House of Representatives without a colonial framework. Dumbass.
Il, Ilhan fake turban Omar, who and I could walk around the streets of Minneapolis and I could pick any Somali person off the streets of Minneapolis and none of them even fucking like you, and you get to, but you get to speak on behalf of them. Well, not when I'm in the room. You could do that to people who don't know no better. You could do that to the MSNBCs and, and the and the uh, you know and the Joanne Reeds and the and the Nancy Pelosi's and whoever the fuck. Yeah, you can't do that with somebody who's actually from the place that you're 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 from. These these Somali people here in Minneapolis don't respect you, and it ain't for the same reasons that the black bourgeoisie you could find will say they don't respect me. The black bourgeoisie that you will find will say that they don't respect me because I don't respect you because the Somalis don't respect you for the LGBTQ bullshit that you prioritize over them, over their faith that they're willing to fight, kill, and die for. I could pick an Uber driver on any given day who, who has a, a Somalian-sounding name or a, a, you know, a more African-sounding name and ask them about Ilhan Omar, and unanimously they say that she's fake as fuck. Unanimously. It's unanimous. At least with the men. I mean, there are, I don't run into many uh, Somali uh, or Muslim uh, female, female Uber drivers, but any of the men, I mean, I could pick one. I could pick any male Somali Uber driver in the city of Minneapolis, and all of them will, for the most part, all of them will almost unanimously say, Ilhan Omar is fake as fuck. Where is the workaround coming in here? I just don't understand it. Part of me just starts to believe that all of these narratives are being used to justify rigging elections based on demographics. It just starts to become very apparent that none of this is what they say it is. None of it. The Free Palestine Movement is the Vote Blue, Vote Biden movement? Is the Never Trump movement? When under Trump we had peace in Palestine? <laughs> Somebody help me in the comments. I may be way off. Maybe, maybe I actually have completely lost my mind. It's possible. I mean, it's always possible. You know, and, and if you do, if you haven't, they'll surely try and gaslight you and tell you you are crazy. But if you if you if you have genuinely lost your mind, most people, you know, the scary thing is about the human psychology is if you lose your mind, you often don't realize you lost your mind. I Maybe I've lost my mind here. But I don't understand how a, a movement on the Internet can be free Palestine and still vote Joe Biden when Joe Biden's in charge of the conflict and he is in charge of the conflict. To say that Joe Biden has no sway over what Israel is doing is completely irrational. Maybe we have control over what both people are doing. I don't know anymore. And I think you should question it as well. What does it say? What does it say that the Iranian leader would go out publicly and state if it wasn't for the American, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the American aircraft carrier or destroyer there in, in the Mediterranean, um, Israel would no longer exist. Well, well I, why would he even say that? I mean, that's, that's just fucking, that's just mind-blowing. He'll say that, but then talk about us being the tyrant. It's almost like they got a little cosplay going on. I mean, it's, it's a little too manufactured to be organic. You know what I'm saying? Like nothing seems out of place about it. Does anybody else get that feeling? Is it just me? Am I crazy? Please call me crazy. 
But does the whole thing seem a little too well organized? I mean, this person's response and that response. And then you have and then you had the Saudis, <laughs> the Saudis and the Iranians who are arch enemies, right? Who, who are fighting over Mecca and Dinah. Then you had the Saudis host an emergency conference for the Islamic Arab world. And the Iranians get right up and say, all the Arabs and Muslims have to come together. Did they? Did they come together? That was like three days ago. I don't know. Is, is, is Saudi Arabia sending troops to, to, uh, to the front line? Qatar, who, who uh, you know, <laughs> they're still, you know, they're they're planning the next World Cup or some shit to probably be in Abu Dhabi or whatever, you know, just business as usual, right? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the relation, the, the relations there in the in the region are not destabilized or uncertain or anything like that. But what I'm saying is, when you really get far back enough and look at it. Doesn't the whole thing look a little too staged to you? Because it does to me. And I just feel for the people who are being used in it. I just feel for the people who have been subject to this, this current theater, whether you're Israeli, whether you're Palestinian, whether you're in the neighboring region, whatever the case may be. And, and I even feel bad for the people who somehow in this warped, twisted, political misinformation zeitgeist actually think that they're pro-Israel, pro-Hamas, free Palestine, but you forget about the Uyghurs. Free Palestine, but you forget about the uh, you forget about the Armenian genocide there, and in World War One. <laughs> you forget about the Armenian genocide in World War One, and let's look at where that's looked at in history. I mean. You know, you forget that the Arabs were original slave traders. You know, we forget that the CCP and the, the Chinese dynasty has always been a slave-taking culture. We forget a lot. Is it by accident? Or have you just not been taught the history? Have your Marxist professors put an emphasis on a certain version or certain details of history so that you can't see who they really are or what they really want, what their goal, what their agenda truly is? Or maybe you do see. And if you do see, if you actually do see the agenda, you should hope, you should hope that the people who want to save this country show you as much, show you as much patience as you would like others to show people who you think are oppressive. who you think are oppressed. And it's a question for the conservative movement. <laughs> you know, I, I heard people, you know, I, I constantly when this January 6th conversation comes up, like the one between um, the, 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 the woman who, uh, who recently moderated the debate with, with, with Vivek, that Vivek Ramaswamy called out. I was watching the, the interview on Meet the Press with her and, and President Trump. And first, I could barely even watch it. I think on Wednesday, we're going to go over some clips from that interview. Hopefully, that's a possibility. I remember I was asked about a few clips or a few questions that, that, that 
Trump answered that people thought were, you know, a little shaky on on a Christian front. It was about abortion and the trans movement or whatever. Uh, Jason actually was the one who brought me on to ask me about his his responses. And I see a lot of Ron DeSantis cucks who say that Donald Trump isn't isn't um, pure enough on these cultural wedge issues like abortion or gay rights or whatever. Uh, I see them use those those segments a lot to to justify how they're making the claim Donald Trump is shaky on some of this stuff, which is complete bullshit. Nobody's more shaky than Ron DeSantis on anything you ask him. There's not a question that I've seen him answer that seems authentic. That's just me. Maybe it's just his mannerisms, but that's just me. Where I'm from, your mannerisms mean something. I mean, you know, your your personality, when it has quirks and stuff, it you know, it makes you seem untrustworthy. And he seems a little bit untrustworthy, I'm just going to say. It's just on face value. His mannerisms seem very fidgety. You know, he's a fidgety guy. He, he, he moves funny. Point being is, I was asked about this Meet the Press interview with this woman. And um, when I went back and I watched the interview, all I saw was, was uh, a hijacked mainstream media institution a politically motivated mainstream media institution try and interview a man in a way that was completely hostile and in no way reflected anything that should be considered professional journalism. I mean, to the point where there wasn't a, there, there probably wasn't a single question that she asked Donald Trump that she allowed him to answer in full. And I thought Donald Trump was very gracious to her. And I know, I know what the mainstream media was trying to do. The mainstream media was trying to get him in a setting with a colored woman, with a black woman, where and maybe she's black, maybe she's mixed, some other, you know, some other ethnicity. I don't know. But on face value, you got Donald Trump, the white man, and the, the colored woman, who, who by categorical claims are all in the group of diversity. They were trying to get him in a position where he snapped back at her so they could say that he doesn't like black women. They were trying to they were trying to bait him into that kind of exchange, and uh, he was very gracious to her. I mean, he just allowed he just allowed her to keep interrupting him. He just keeps kept saying, you know, excuse me, excuse me, um, please allow me to speak. Excuse me, excuse me. Way way nicer than I would have been, and that's why at some point I think at some point I'm going to have to run for president. I mean, after DT wins in 2024 and we look to the future, I don't feel comfortable letting Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley ever be president of the United States in this country. So I think one day I may have to run for nothing else than to see if the MSNBCs and CNNs of the world have the balls to sit down in an interview setting with me and actually, actually post, actually run the interview that we would have. Because under no circumstances would I would I be as gracious with these people as Donald Trump. They're lucky to have Donald Trump and not me. They're lucky to have Donald Trump, who still has the thin veil of civility, despite all of the kangaroo court and banana republic-like persecution he's faded. He still has enough enough dignity in in this sort of Western ethic and culture to be gracious to these people. Us younger smash mouth populists, we don't have it. I'm telling you now, it ain't gonna be pretty. It is not gonna be pretty. When I'm sitting, but a, a difference would be when I'm sitting across from they won't they won't talk about the issues anymore. They'll make the attacks completely personal. 
They'll make the attacks completely personal when it's somebody like me. And you watch, you mark my words. Remember this day. Remember this clip. Somebody in there, clip this. Show it four, eight years from now when I'm in the position and watch what they try to use to attack me versus how they try to corner Donald Trump. And you'll see how the mainstream media really just wants to play on people's identity to sow confusion, create distraction, create division so they can continue to run the game they're running and conquer the American people by concession, really. But I was watching this, and, and, and they, uh, they made this claim about sedition. I'm sorry, I went on a rant right there. This is what I do often. No notes. I don't have no notes. I don't talk with notes. I'm just talking to you. Hopefully you can appreciate that. I may get off track a little bit because I'll think of something in real time that I think deserves a little bit more explanation. But it's better than having a pre-baked fucking speech written by somebody who I don't even really know that well. Could be working for the security state or the intelligence community. Nobody writes for me. I'm just talking to you. The whole point in bringing up that interview was the idea about sedition. And I started to think about the word sedition and how often it's being used to, to, to describe, to characterize us, the MAGA movement. Seditious. And I thought to myself, nothing's more fucking seditious than voting then your political elites voting to give the sovereignty of your governance over to an international body that has disproportionate influence from your mortal enemies, your sworn mortal enemies. And China has made us their sworn mortal enemy. Don't listen to anybody have this happy talk about China just wants to do business. They don't want to do war. It's fucking bullshit. They have been very public that they are our sworn mortal enemy. They are interested in a multipolar, China-centric future that the European Finocchios are going to concede to because really they resent us anyway. I mean, when you pay the toll for somebody, as long as we've paid for the Europeans, naturally they start to resent you. When you pay to defend people, as long as we've paid to defend the Europeans, naturally they start to resent you. So, hey. Let's try a different paymaster. Let's go with the CCP. We're over here with them anyway. Point is, nothing's more seditious than that. Nothing's more seditious than the intelligence community having 51 officials sign, participate in disinformation about Russia's election interference. That is sedition. That is seditious. That is something somebody should be brought up on charges for. And the fact that Donald Trump is still being, still being prosecuted on uh, several indictments with hundreds of years of potential incarceration and not one intelligence community official has been brought before a committee and brought up on any charges for lying? For lying about the uh, about election interference and blaming it on a country that could potentially spark a nuclear war? How can we say that we're pro-Palestine? How can we say we're free? How can we say we're pro-Palestinian children? We've conceded to promulgate war at a level that would affect all children, all innocent children everywhere. 
not just in Palestine, but all over the world. You people got to stop lying to yourselves. This has been another episode of Please Call Me Crazy, brought to you by Free People Radio, powered by our favorite sponsor, TireGet.com. That's TireGet.com. You have to buy tires from somebody. You might as well buy them from us and help fund the movement, help support the movement. We believe in the freedom of movement, and that's exactly what the establishment wants to take from you now. I'm your host, Royce White, here in the belly of the beast, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us again. We appreciate your viewership and your listenership now and in the future. Visit freepeopleradio.com to figure out where you can watch and listen to the podcast as well as follow us on social media. The Hebrews podcast is coming soon. The YouTube channel will be up soon. The Royce White Show will be coming soon. The Last Renaissance podcast with myself and AJ Barker will be coming soon, I believe. On this week's Family and Friends episode, we will have the great Cash Patel, and we may have we may even have another Family and Friends guest episode this week as well. Um, this coming Saturday, I'm going to rerun the Alex Jones interview from episode 18. It will be available only on Rumble, and I will be streaming it on my Twitter as well, live stream. We're going to keep it off YouTube so the jerk-offs there in Silicon Valley or at Google don't get a justification to try and deplatform me because we know they're always looking for that. Nor the housekeeping. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I hope I helped you think about some things. I hope we can continue to have a conversation as we find out more information and as things unfold in this conflict, but here at home as well. I want to send a special thank you to the entire War Room posse, you out there in the audience, the entire crew that makes the War Room go, Grace Chong, Maureen Bannon, and the great Steve Bannon. I appreciate your friendship, your willingness to let me speak to the audience on a nightly basis. We appreciate all the rumble engagement and all the viewers there in the live chat on Gitter. If you're in the Gitter live chat on War Room's Gitter page, thank you. We appreciate your, your continued support of Please Call Me Crazy. If you're in the live chat here on YouTube, thank you. Please, don't forget, go leave a real comment. Please, I love when you comment in the live chat. The live chat is great. Go leave a real comment to help the algorithm. Hit the like button. All of that stuff is, is, is fine, is good if, if you so choose. The fight continues. Don't die a jerk off. As always, Godspeed.